Welcome to Choose Wisely, the podcast where we deconstruct food and sustainability topics with nuance and primary sources. I'm Caroline Nelson, and today's episode features Kate Cavanaugh of Western Daughters Butcher Shop in Colorado, and also the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, which I am very honored to have been on. This is part one of a two-part interview, and... (laughs) When I get my friends on the podcast, I simply can't seem to let them go, and we must talk for two hours. So we broke this one into two parts. And part one, today's episode, really gets into the the groundwork of Kate's story. So she went from a long-term vegetarian from the age of five to eating her first pronghorn burger 20 years later, and eventually to opening up a butcher shop of her very own with her husband and going you know, pretty much all the way the other direction, very into regenerative agriculture and very into meat. We talk a lot about what it actually entails to be responsible for taking an animal's life for food production. We talk about how that work has changed her relationship with food, with herself, with the idea of of death even. Kate and I actually met for the first time last weekend at the Old Salt Festival, and we found ourselves in multiple hours of these long, deep talks, and this interview is a continuation of that. We both, and and you'll probably hear this in the podcast, have this like reverence for meat, and that might sound weird to some people, but I see it a lot in people who do this type of work, whether they're butchering, whether they're raising. It's like when you really love the work that you do and you really believe in it, the end product carries with it a type of reverence. And I really, I feel that from Kate and I relate to her really strongly on that. We really cherish meat and all animal products for their nutrient density, for what they bring to our lives and and sort of as also a portal to, to life itself, to connection, to embodiment even, which we'll talk about more in part two. And I imagine it's the same for for fruit and vegetable producers. I would be curious to see how people feel, whether that does resonate. It's just that this is the food that I produce. So <laughs> this is how I relate to it. But I imagine if you, you know, spend your days raising peaches, you have a real reverence for peaches. Before we get into the episode, I want to thank our newest patrons, AJ, Amy, and Linnea. Thank you so much for becoming Regenerators, for supporting this independent podcast. I am sending out Choose Wisely stickers to our patrons this week, and I'm just so grateful to the community over there who believes in the work that we're doing and is helping keep us free of advertisements as much as possible and keeping us going as a totally independent podcast. All right, our segment, what's been a hard and what's been beautiful on the ranch this week. I was texting my friend Becca the other day, what's been hard is the long days and the long nights. Here in Montana, the sun doesn't set till like 9.30. We just had the solstice. You still have light at 10 even. So we just have these really long days when we were talking about how we really don't like this rhythm that you can get into here in the summer where you're like having dinner at 10.30 at night. I mean, there's days when that feels really fulfilling and fun. But when you do that a lot in a row, which we have been doing, it can make you feel like you're running a little ragged. And... I'm self-employed. Like I'm the boss of me. If I'm not happy with something, I can change it. And yet I seem to not be doing that. 
the days, like the long summer days, they just seem to kind of stack up and the tasks pile up. And it just feels like it takes 12 to 14 hours a day right now just to put out all the fires. Like I don't necessarily feel like I'm getting like the long range high level work done. I'm, I'm like putting out fires all day. Yeah. So that's been hard. What's been beautiful is our customers. Our customers have really showed up for us in the past month. We had our best June sales month ever. A lot of that is because we had two big drops of our all natural sheepskins. Um, They're now sold out, I believe. Both of them sold out pretty much within like 24 hours. Generally, like our sheepskins are in such high demand. They're we only restock a couple times a year, like one or two times. And I don't even generally get to the point of sharing them on social media because they just like sell out to our email and our text list before they ever get any further. And that pretty much happened here. Um, yeah, they sell out super fast. But it's not only that. Our customers have also been signing up for our Farm Club, which is our beef subscription program. They've been ordering a lot of lamb, which we just restocked on the website. We've got lamb boxes right now. We have a huge shipping day coming up. We also had a ton of in-person sales lately of our seasonings, candles, our sheet milk soaps. At the old Salt Fest, people really showed up for us when we were a vendor there. So I'm just grateful. Like I've been placing urgent orders with our candle makers. I've been, you know, like ordering more boxes and packaging supplies, pallets of stuff because people have just been really showing up for us this month. And I'm just beyond grateful. Um, This has been a big year for us in terms of expenses. We actually, the business has never yet been profitable, but we've been like clinging to break even. Um, And this year we've expanded even more. So it'll probably be the same again this year. We've brought on full-time help for the first time. We've been bringing on some more expenses because we've added like a new arm to the business, which is custom haying. making our own hay and making hay for other people. So we got some equipment and, and, you know, the swather belt broke yesterday and we had to put a new battery in it and just all these, all these things. And actually a month ago, I was really stressed about all the expenses. I sat down with Justin. I'm like, what are we going to do? You know? And I just feel like this past month, our customers turned up, turned out, and I feel like I can breathe. And I'm just so grateful to everybody. All right, here we go. Without further ado, I give you my interview with Kate Cavanaugh, part one. Choose Wisely is brought to you by my small business, Little Creek Lamb and Beef. The first Monday of every month, I pack and ship our beef subscription orders. These are customers who get a box every month or every two or three or four months. And we got the best customer review the other day, so I'm going to read it to you. Brenda wrote me and she said, Hi, I gifted the beef subscription to my husband for Christmas, and we look forward to every single meal we've made out of it. Honestly, these are the best burgers we have ever had, ever. I also love being able to watch the love and passion that goes into the food we are feeding our kid. And I told him the story of how it can all be traced back locally. My only wish is that we did this sooner. Thank you. That meant so much to me. We've been running our beef subscription for a couple years now, and I love custom packing each box. I feel like I get to know each family, who they're cooking for. I learn their favorite cuts, and we're swapping it up all the time, making sure they're trying new things every box. It's so fun. For a limited time, we're offering 10% off your first order over $100 with the code WISELY, all caps. That's WISELY, W-I-S-E-L-Y. 
Follow the link in the show notes to shop or visit littlecreekmontana.com. I feel like people should know that not only did we meet for the first time this past weekend, but that we were supposed to camp together and that... (laughs) (laughs) I was not going to call you out on this. (laughs) And that... Kate did camp. <laughs> I did camp. I did camp. <laughs> what and, did you um, do? Let's so, tell everybody what you did. You know what? And there there happened to be an open guest room. And really, you know, my friend Erica, it was, we just, I didn't want her to be alone. And I thought, you know. <laughs> it was definitely about Erica. It was definitely <laughs> about Erica. And not roughing it no and so every day I would be like no Kate today's the day like I'm gonna camp with you tonight I'm done with that soft behavior like (laughs) soft behavior tonight tonight we camp and then like night would creep on and it would be like nine at night and you'd be like how you feeling (laughs) and you'd be like yeah I'm gonna go Justin simply could not believe that he's like, I'm sorry, wait, you left your friend in your tent multiple nights alone. And I don't know. Oh, I mean, I I was fine. Yeah, you were, you were fine. It was a bit chilly. I (laughs) was a bit chilly. And, and the lack of you in the tent meant that I could hog all the sheepskins for myself. I felt like a queen. Oh my gosh, that's the only the only good thing about camping with me. I won't be there, but I will bring you a lot of sheepskins to adorn yourself with. <laughs> I was I was adorned. I was living the high life and you you also were living your high life. I think we were both in our in yeah. our best yeah, in our best spots. Next year, next year, I'll next year, next year, tomorrow night, tonight, (laughs) tonight will be fine. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Anyway, it was so fun to meet you. I'm so excited for this conversation. So I have today, Kate Cavanaugh, you are a butcher, you're an educator, you are the host of the Mind Body Soil podcast. What else am I missing? You're a farmer. I'm a farmer. Yeah. I don't think you're missing anything else. I think that's the, I think that's a lot of what I do. And you I'm just going to kick right off. You have kick it off. a really interesting and also fairly common trajectory in terms of your food journey in which you started as a vegetarian and have become a butcher. And I always joke that there's like a vegetarian to regenerative rancher pipeline. There is. There is. It's a real thing. On. Can you tell us about like the beginning of your food journey and what started to nudge you along on it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I chose to become a vegetarian at a very young age. So I was about five. And I think that the reason that I decided to become a vegetarian actually wasn't that uncommon, even though it was I was uncommonly young. Mm-hmm. And it had to do a lot with my life felt very out of control. And this aspect of food for me felt like something that I could control. And in it, I also felt like I could opt out of death. And I was experiencing a lot of death in my home life. And Mm -hmm. I felt that this was a way to avoid that. And so the older I got, the deeper those 
feelings became. What started as something that was about animal welfare became something that was also about environmentalism. And I just became more educated. And then suddenly I found myself at in my late teens, right about when I turned 20, being really sick. I was having a lot of gastrointestinal issues. I was anxious. I was depressed. I had no energy. And I was hungry. And I could feel this sort of deep sense of hunger that had welled up Mm -hmm. inside of me. And I was craving meat. Mm -hmm. And I was at the point with my health where I felt like I was ready to do anything and eating meat was one of those things. And so I just dove right in uh, (laughs) head first into the entire world of agriculture and meat and butchery. Because that environmentalism didn't leave you. If anything, just based, it would be a guess of mine that in some ways it magnified as you went down your journey. Oh, yes. You know, what was like that first meal that it contained meat? What was that like? And did you have any guidelines? You know, because a lot of times it's sort of like, again, I always think of it like there's kind of a pipeline of like, well, Mm -hmm. I'll just eat fish or I'm just going to eat these things that have like, don't have a mother or something. So like, did you have any kind of... (laughs) (laughs) So that first meal was a bit of a, a... spur of the moment occurrence. I I was out and I was with my now husband, Josh, and we were in Sedona, Arizona, and he had ordered a big game burger. And it was, it was pronghorn. It was antelope. Wow. And I smelled it and it smelled un- unreal. And so I gave, I forfeited my salad to him and I ate this entire burger and I even saved like this little piece to, to munch on on the way home. And the next day, we lived about three hours from Sedona at the time. He asked me what I wanted to do. And I was like, I want to go eat another one of those burgers. And wow. so we drove three hours to eat another burger. And what happened after that is a little bit more predictable. I I wanted to start eating meat. And so I've started visiting farmers markets. I started getting to know farmers and ranchers and going to their farms and ranches, seeing their animals, seeing their practices. This was 15 years ago. And so very much, you know, before the term regenerative was being used and kind of the era of Michael Pollan's omnivores dilemma and the (laughs) rise of farmers markets. So very different time. As an aside, I just was listening to an interesting podcast about the omnivores dilemma, which kind of swept culture, a very specific type of culture. Yes, it did. And and I was part of that wave. And the podcast, I have some bones to pick with like how they talked about it. This was a maintenance phase podcast. Um, because I think that Michael Pollan, like in a lot of ways, comes to some good conclusions. And I'm not always sure about like how he gets there. And there's just mm-hmm. this feeling of this air of elitism throughout the book of like a way to it's like, let's eat meat, but for rich people. Like, you know what I you know what I mean? Am I I'm really bluntly yeah. stating this? <laughs> You know, it's funny, I haven't revisited it in a really long time, but my memories of how he couched it were 
absolutely this sort of ivory tower idea of omnivory Mm -hmm. and the idea of eat food, mostly plants, which Mm -hmm. I don't agree with. Mm -hmm. However, it was it was a big turn towards where does your food come from? And, Mm -hmm. and I think asking that question and the way that that pervaded society is certainly interesting, but I, I I think that the way that he, uh, he couched it is not, what are your, what's your take? What's your hot take? Yeah. You're, you're being more eloquent than I am. I it's in some ways, I think it's funny because the, the, the motto that he has of like eat food, mostly plants, agree or disagree that's mostly what most people eat anyway. So like, if you look at the component parts of what people are already eating, it's already mostly plants. And I Mm. was screaming, listening to this one podcast, they were talking about Tom Brady, who was like famously like dabbled Mm -hmm. with veganism and he's in the game Mm -hmm. changers, I think, and all that stuff. And he says, I eat primarily plant-based, 80% plant-based. And that hit me. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> so what? you're an omnivore? Yeah. So <laughs> so wait. So a fifth of your, of your diet is, is animal-based? <laughs> I'm sorry. Why are you doing this? I'm just going to sweep this under the rug. I'm just going to like hide this part where yeah. I eat It's meat. like repackaging consumption, like our food consumption, so that there's like this moral superiority. It's like anything mm-hmm. so that people with means, people with privilege, people with wealth can like feel superior. I mean, I'm being really harsh, but like I, when I think of the circle of people that that book really impacted, they're like, well, I got my artisanal turkey meat and all these, Mm -hmm. you know, gluttons out here Mm -hmm. eating burger just from the store, you know, and where I've landed on this now is like, and we don't need to jump all the way into this yet, but it's like, if you can, and if it aligns neatly into your life, like, heck yeah, you have a responsibility to take baby steps towards this more sustainable food system. I think, you know what I mean? Like, I think that that responsibility lies with the people. Generally it's the corporations and really big power players. But Mm -hmm. I think like people like right now I'm at a place in my life where I can, I can be doing some of that there's been times in my life where I couldn't. And it's the idea of shaming people for their food choices and to tell them to turn away from nutritionally dense food is like, makes me ragey. All while continuing the story that corporations have sold us where they're putting the onus back on consumers. And I think to do that within (laughs) our own group is absolutely... It, it infuriates me, honestly, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. for us to turn back and say, okay, the onus is, the onus is on consumers. And it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. That's, that's what corporations have done. We, and, we can do better than yeah, that. Them and the corporations, as we know now, buying up the plant-based brands, the organic brands, they're controlling the entire production process. They're putting different stickers on different meats, depending on which conveyor belt it came down. You're not circumventing this, the same big, big meat players just because you're reaching over and paying two dollars more for that ground beef yep and this is why i'm like in corporate corporate (laughs) pockets jbs again it's it's still jbs Um, yeah (laughs) so i'm like this it's so radical um to go directly to a farmer but anyway i want to get back to your story you go from having this pronghorn burger and you become a butcher so you you went hard you went all the way so like yeah, what inside of journey? probably like 14 months. No way. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. 
I can mean, you tell zero me that to journey, 60. And can you talk me through your very first harvest? Yeah, absolutely. So I really am an all in kind of person. And mm-hmm. I think that this journey was reflective of that. I started eating meat. I started visiting farms and ranches. I started reading everything I could about agriculture, about what was kind of termed at the time as holistic land management mm-hmm. and learning a little bit more about ecosystems as well. You know, what did that look like in Arizona? What did that look like in Colorado, where I was from, and in various different places? And I started cooking a lot of meat. And the first thing I wanted to cook, because I am ever the contrarian, was <laughs> organ meats. Oh my I gosh. wanted to learn how to cook heart. I wanted to learn how to cook liver. I wanted to just <laughs> dive right into what nobody else wanted to touch, because that's mm-hmm. always the thing that I want to touch the most. Mm-hmm. And in that, I started reading reading some some books around butchery and decided that I wanted to do an apprenticeship and applied for an apprenticeship. And I think within 12 or 14 months of that first bite was breaking down, you know, three, four animals a week in a butchery apprenticeship. And in that space, I also, we had kept chickens and and we're getting eggs and one of the chickens turned out to be a rooster and i knew in that time frame that i wanted to i wanted to kill the rooster mm-hmm. and be a part of that process to touch death because i was acutely aware from my background that i mean that is the inflection point of mm-hmm. of our food processes in a lot of mm-hmm. ways is is this death process and I did a bunch of reading online, of which there wasn't really much at the time, and processed this chicken in my front yard in Mm -hmm. Phoenix, Arizona. And I was I was devastated. And and I think I was devastated in ways that I I mean, remember at this time I'm like 21 years old. And I think I was devastated for what I had lost in terms of the experiences that we might have once had that would have been mm-hmm. a part of our upbringing at some mm-hmm. point in mm-hmm. human history. I was devastated with grief to witness, to touch death, to touch this mm-hmm. thing that I had seen so much of in my childhood and is so hidden from us in our culture and to be a part of it and to have ownership and agency in mm-hmm. that too. And I was also, I mean, it, it's such a, it's such a hard emotion to define. I don't know that there's a word for it, but I was proud maybe mm-hmm. to mm-hmm to step into this world of being able to have some agency over my food and some connection. Mm -hmm. I love all the contradictory emotions that you're able to identify from that moment. And it really takes me back. So I have not butchered anything. I have been involved in a lot of butcheries and it takes me back to my first time skinning an elk where there's like this huge welling up of emotion. And it's interesting because I think this is like a new emotion. I don't think I'd ever had it before. And I don't know that our culture has a name for this. Yes. This is kind of just occurring to me right now because all we have is like sadness, grief, guilt, like anxiety over here Mm -hmm. in a corner. Mm -hmm. 
and then I'll like, it wasn't a happy emotion, Mm-mm. but it was, it was a bit euphoric. There was like a bit of that in it yes. mixed in with somberness. Yeah. And I remember this feeling of like, this is not wrong. Like this is really yeah. intense. I'm experiencing some grief in doing this, even though I didn't kill this animal, I'm helping mm-hmm. with the processing. And in some ways, this feeling of like my body knew what to do was mm-hmm. very interesting too. I was not disgusted. I wasn't grossed out. All these things that like you think it's going to be. Um, yeah. But that mix of like grief and joy in the process is very hard to describe. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 bittersweet, but it's a different version of bittersweet. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. reverence in there and there's connection mm-hmm. in there. And we don't. We don't have a word in the English language that describes that feeling. It's just mm-hmm. something that you have to experience and something that I too have experienced as a knowing, that there was mm-hmm. a, a sort of visceral understanding of that experience, of mm-hmm. that not wrongness mm-hmm. that feels almost like a genetic imperative, a birthright, uh, Mm -hmm. something that we've been doing, right? We are one of 44,000 generations of hunters. You do not lose that Mm -hmm. just because we've been disconnected for 50, 100, Mm -hmm. 150 years. Yeah, it's all right there. I felt the same learning to hide tan. I always say it was like plugging back in, like something in my DNA was just like clicking in of like, Mm -hmm. I know what to do. It was still the hardest thing I've ever done, like tried to learn. It was really punishing in some ways, but this sort of like the way that you feel around a campfire, it really clicks in to to something so deep. So you mentioned the grief that you feel like something that was hidden from you or something that was taken Mm -hmm. from you as like a birthright. Can you say more about that? Yeah. I actually, I think about this a lot in terms of of death of all kinds, right? Mm-hmm. And for a long time, for for all of human history, up until about 150 years ago, we still undertook all of our dead. We still washed bodies and mm-hmm. held wakes in the parlor and made those connections. We saw death. Deaths occurred more at home. They weren't in hospices Mm -hmm. or in hospitals, touched bodies, and we also killed our food. Mm -hmm. And so in that, we were really connected to this piece that is a very important part of the cycle of life. Mm -hmm. And I think that this has been in many ways taken away from us and not just taken away from us, but the burden of death, especially in our food system, has been put on very few individuals. When you are talking about a slaughterhouse that does 15 to 18,000 animals a day in three Mm -hmm. shifts, Mm -hmm. and you think about the people that are working that kill floor, Mm -hmm. that was... That was never, I, that is unfathomable to me. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. one thing I will say about when you're doing a, a fair amount of kills in a day is that it has a sort of exhaustion that sits in you, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and we can talk about there's this emotion that you can't quite put your finger on that we don't have words for, but over a certain point, there is a burden. And mm-hmm. we have outsourced death to very few people. And I think that that is actually one of the most overlooked and insidious parts of of 
big food of these big mm-hmm. packing houses that we see now. But it is it has also crept in in how we take care of our dead. And I think that when you get to touch these things, whether it's killing a chicken in your front yard or Phoenix, Arizona, mm-hmm. or whether it's the incredible and complicated thing of caring for a loved one that is dying or that has mm-hmm. died, it connects you back into life in mm-hmm. ways that are intangible and hard to describe. So beautifully said. To circle back to what you were saying about the burden on butchers, I think it's so beautifully said. And even like we work with a very small craft USDA butchery. I mean, this is like a small team in a small town. And even the numbers that they do, it feels like there it would be hard for it to not be numbing. And it reminds me a lot of people who work in uh, medicine or like in the ER, like there's that same Mm -hmm. gallows humor, that same kind of like people who are in the trenches feeling. Because when you think back, like a butchering would have always been not just like a really communal activity, like a really community oriented activity, everyone helping. It also would have been not every day, you know, this would have been something that is sporadic and periodic and seasonal. And yeah, I really, I have such like reverence for our butchers and such gratitude. And I also have some frustration with the way like that it's set up that they have to have this, in some ways, this burden because yes, under USDA um, law, we're not allowed to do on-farm butcher and retail sales across state lines. And actually, I don't Correct. know about any retail sales. Only bison, uh, right? Oh, I don't know about, so this varies state by state. I believe in Wyoming it is possible and that that is the only place and you're going to have to double check me on that. (laughs) That Yeah. But for for the most part, there are no exemptions. There are Mm -hmm. some custom exempt situations for hunters, but that is a very, a very different category. And so this is not retail that meat. Mm-hmm. You could never retail that meat. And mm-hmm. so we are backed into a corner on yeah. these decisions. And if we were to lift some of that legislation or to change mm-hmm. some of those laws, it would allow people to share in that burden for there mm-hmm. to be more people available to do the killing, to do the processing. Yeah, we would probably do on-farm, all on-farm kill. Yeah. Um, and then we would probably have like a chiller, you know, like a freezer truck, yep. chill carcasses, and then they would be sent for, for cut and wrap. And so bison in Montana can do that. I've, I've got friends in the bison and in, industry here. I think both Dakotas. Okay, both Dakotas. But not Colorado. And I wonder, really? But, oh my gosh. So that's fascinating. Um, but And I do feel like I've set up our, for our beef and our lamb, they have like the shortest trailer ride possible. They're used to trailers. The haul is not traumatic. I'm very happy with our butchers. Like the whole process is one that I feel really good about. However, like as within the confines of the rules that we have, mm-hmm. but it, it's just frustrating to me, like ultimate, the ultimate goal would be on, on farm slaughter. And it's very frustrating to me that the USDA won't allow it. I understand in some ways why, but I also, I feel like it's that last step for us, you know? 
I understand in some ways why, but it is increasingly (laughs) difficult for me to do so. And Mm -hmm, food mm -hmm. safety (laughs) is important. However, Mm -hmm. I I think that there are a lot of misunderstandings Mm -hmm. when it comes to that. And I think that you're also looking at something, you know, and not not to say that everything is about a bottom line, but when you're talking about such a slim margin industry, being able to do the kill yourself and maybe Mm -hmm. even the cut and wrap, Mm -hmm. that really increases your bottom line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we pay quite a bit just for the kill. The kill's separate from the cut. Yep. Um, it's usually like between $75 and $150. Exactly. That's exactly what we pay. So, okay, to put a pin in that for now. So you go on your butchery journey. You and your husband start Western Daughters, which I, I want to come yes. back to. This is your butcher shop in Colorado. So you're you're deep in the industry. You've been featured in all this press. You've done like you've been in the New York Times, and you see an opening in the industry to have a different type of meat featured in your in your business. Can you tell us about your values and how you set up your business? Yeah. So Western Daughters Butcher Shop, we started in 2013 in Denver, Colorado, and we are a retail butcher shop. So we do cut and wrap. We don't do kill. Mm-hmm. Um, everything comes to us. It's, it's been killed. We work closely with our processors. Mm -hmm. And at the time I really wanted to find a way to connect with farmers and ranchers that had these, you know, holistic land management practices, regenerative, we can call it a lot of different things and it's changed over the years. But I really wanted to know how we we could save the prairie one stake at a time. I had grown up in the state where our, we're a high desert, not a lot of rainfall, and that ecosystem is native shortgrass prairie. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of the things, one of the very few things that it grows well is animals and meat. And my experience had been talking to a lot of farmers and ranchers that that drive into Denver to sell their wares two to three times a week at different farmers markets was really wearing them down. And so Mm -hmm. I had a big question of how can I become a middleman where we're sharing these stories across this urban rural divide. And so within an urban setting, you're getting stories of where your food is coming from, Mm. how it's grown, the ecosystems that are there, and you're getting this, this nutrient of connection. And on the other hand, these farmers are also receiving these stories of how this meat is changing people's lives, changing Mm -hmm. their health and creating a supply chain that is considering humans too. And so how do we how do we pay farmers and ranchers very well, which right now it's about 52 cents of every dollar you spend goes back to a farmer or rancher at Western Daughters. Mm-hmm. And how can I build them consistency? This is how mm-hmm. many animals I'm going to take per week this year and next year. Wow. And so building a, a sense of security into the food system. There's so many layers of what you're doing that are that are so such a gift to farmers. And, and another piece is you're taking the burden off them to do their own marketing and do their own retail. And yes. so right now, like our options at large for farmers is either sell into the commodity market and get reamped. Yep. Like, I don't know what per dollar, what farmers get on the retail market. It's very low. It's like seven cents or something. On commodity? I have to look it up. Commodity, yeah. Wow. I, I'd have to double check, but it's like, it's just yeah. bleak. Seven cents. Um, you know, I mean, on average at the grocery store, farmers and ranchers get back between eight and 11 cents. 
Okay, so thank you. That's much the stat I'm there. looking for. There you go. Yeah. That's your option. Or go direct to consumer and become totally vertically integrated and be your own marketing and be your own Oh my gosh, web Shipper, design. customer Shipper. service, web yes. design. Yeah. Uh, inventory manager, yeah. Uh, yeah. communication, everything is, you, you have mean, to wear every whole, single hat. And this is what we do. And I get asked so much, like, is this for us? Should we do it? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I try to really suss out, like, do, do you want this to be the work that you do on a daily basis? Like, do you want to be out there doing the farming? Cause you can't, you know, for me, it's like, I've I'm at my desk a lot. Like there's a, I'm yeah. doing an hour probably of marketing every single day, a day of shipping, you know, most weeks, like a whole day you have to go all into this stuff. And it's not, it's not fair to ask that of, of most farmers. I mean, these are in yep. another industry, you would have like one person in each of these positions and the farm simply doesn't have the margins to do that. So when you say, not only am I going to like pay, you know, this fair wage for your hard created product, but I'm also going to take the, I'm going to be the distributor. It's a huge shift. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like if a if a retail butcher approached me with this offer. I'd be like, "What would I do all day?" I'd be I'd have like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It would be amazing. It's important and I I'm really interested in the importance of what I call third parties. So there's I think of this as having our our food system and this this is a bit of an oversimplification of having three stakeholders. You mm-hmm. have consumers, you have producers, these are going to be farmers, ranchers, and then you have this kind of catch-all of third party, uh, butcher shops, retailers, mm-hmm. aggregators, yeah. and third party can be an important part of the food system. I think that Hugely. direct to consumer is going to confer the best margins, mm-hmm. but there are other benefits to going through butchers, retailers, aggregators. And there's this thing in my mind too of it's so radical what you're doing. And also shops like yours existed in every small town, what, 75 years ago? Oh yeah. And oh yeah. And yet it's like reinventing the wheel. In that time, these supply chains and the memory of how to do them it Gone. is wiped away. Like you are having to start from scratch now and doing so alone. And I and I want to come back to this too, but like, can you just tell us? like we've painted like a pretty rosy picture of what Western daughters, you know, what the work is. And can you just give us a taste of like reality check that a little? Yeah, let's reality check that. So (laughs) 10 years in, it's been a decade. Mm -hmm. And the big conversation that we're having right now is, is it sustainable? Is it financially sustainable? Mm -hmm. Is this something that can last? And we have been kicking around the idea of closing our business. Mm -hmm. And this is... This is really complicated, and I, I I always like to approach this. I don't want to be a downer, but I also think that sometimes when we share the truth, it offers an opening for us to explore new ideas and options, you know, together as a community. And so we spend about 52 cents of every dollar goes back to a farmer or rancher and about 30 cents of every dollar goes to our employees. And we try to Mm -hmm. pay our employees best we can. Cost of living in Denver is comparable to coastal cities like LA and New York. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it is very hard to pay a good wage for, for good work. And it's important to us to try. Mm -hmm. And what keeps me up at night is that we are not paying our farmers and ranchers enough, even though we pay more than anybody else, but their (laughs) margins are still sitting too low for anybody's comfort. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. We pay our employees, you know, as much as we can. And again, mm-hmm. it's not enough. Mm-hmm. And there is a ceiling on how much we can charge for meat. And I, consumers can't afford it because mm-hmm. they are also up against increasing costs of living in Denver. Mm -hmm. And so, and then at the end of the day, you know, when we're talking about the, the 18 cents that's left over to pay rent and trash and water and taxes and dry goods and all of these different things, it's not there. Mm -hmm. And so our margin as a butcher, you know, we were pretty, we had some good years during COVID, um, but we're not in the black right now. And Mm -hmm. at some point, it's no longer financially sustainable, regenerative for mm-hmm. us to keep going. And that's been a question that we're asking ourselves. And I think one of the interesting things is, you know, in that trio of stakeholders, it's no one's fault. Right. And I really want to stress this because what I see is there's a lot of finger pointing. Well, if mm-hmm. consumers would just pay more. Well, mm-hmm. if the processor weren't nickel and diming us. Mm-hmm. Well, if farmers, you know, that we all want to point fingers. And the more I think about it, there's no one's fault. And I think it is just, I don't think our food was ever supposed to be systematized, commoditized, capitalized, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we're all running up against the problem of that. Yes. Yeah. And and I always bring this up, but like we're, I just read just right now before we got on the call that food cost is up 30% in the last four years. I mean, it's unfathomably inflating. And at the same time, as a percentage of household income, we're still paying way less for our food than we did, you know, 50, yes. 70 about, years ago. It was about 30% in 1960 yeah. of household yeah. income compared mm-hmm. to 10% now. However, mm-hmm. I think some other costs have grown dramatically. Everything else has ballooned. There's no room. There's no room for anybody to, to pay more in their budget for most people. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, I'm like, I, I feel like we're kind of lurching along in a system that doesn't fit uh, quite yes. right. Like for yes. us, you know, we're pretty young in our business. So we're still trying to figure out, we're trying to get to scale, first of all, like trying to get to even mm-hmm. just like our break even numbers. But I mean, right now our retreats are propping up the meat business. The meat business right now is, you know, barely at a break even, and I better not go buy any new butcher trays or anything that we need. And like, is that with hides? <laughs> I want to be specific here. Yeah, that would be without our hides. hides. Part okay, without hides. So if okay. the hides, so this is I'll just quickly. So our lamb, we sell um like naturally tanned sheepskin hides, and if they turn out, they will tip our lamb into the green. And I say, if they turn out, because I've learned the hard way that you don't get like one tanned hide per one butchered lamb, um, mm-hmm. all kinds of things can happen in the curing phase. Yes. And also if there's any issue with that fleece, like if it has burdock in it, if it has, you know, all, you know, different kinds of like horrible seeds can get in there. Grass seeds that we could spend hours picking Mm -hmm. out as a group of women and (laughs) thoroughly enjoying. Is that what you're referring to? I I got Kate and Haley at Old Salt. I was like, hey, what are you guys up to? And we all sat around and picked cheatgrass seeds out of a sheepskin for ages. It was very, it was very meditative. Oh, very meditative. Very soothing. But there were hides off of that batch. That was like, those are the good ones. I had to pull ones that I couldn't 
even send to the tannery because our tannery costs are so high. And again, I don't, I don't begrudge them the work they do. They deserve all that more, but um, I'm not going to send a hide that I don't think is going to turn out well because it's going to cost me $150 to $200 per hide to send it there, pay for tanning, get it back. So, cause of course the shipping costs anyway, anyway, thank you for, you know, telling us where you're at with Western daughters. I think, I think consumers really need to know. And I, I do think sometimes there's this narrative of like the, the work you're doing gets like a halo put on it, but mm-hmm. there's a bit of like, people would want you to keep doing it, you know? And I think it's important for mm-hmm. farmers and producers and butchers who are not thriving within the system. Like regenerative means us too. Like the people yeah. have to be sustaining yes. and thriving within it. Yes. And transparency, when we are asking for transparency with practices, with sourcing, with all of these different things, I think we also have to have transparency on how these systems as a whole are operating, mm-hmm. um, at least amongst ourselves, among some financial transparency. Yeah. yeah. Because this is part of, like you said, you know, the system isn't really working. And part of figuring out what might work instead is talking openly about what is not working. Yeah. Beautifully said. Thank you for joining me today on Choose Wisely. I'll see you next week with part two of my interview with Kate Cavanaugh. You can follow up with Kate at the links in the show notes. And I hope your next meal is delicious and your next conversation nuanced. Please, if you've got five seconds, rate and review Choose Wisely. We appreciate it so much and it helps others find us. Stay in touch with us on Instagram at Choose Wisely Podcast, Twitter, Choose Wisely Pod. And we'd love to welcome you as a regenerator on our Patreon at patreon.com slash choose wisely podcast. You can also email us with questions, comments, and episode requests, choosewiselypodcast at gmail.com. Cheers.